History. History. Through the eyes of those who lived it. This is Hometown Heroes. Presented on the air and online by Provident Payments. Proudly honoring the men and women whose service and sacrifice have secured our freedom. Now, the host of Hometown Heroes, Paul Leffler. Welcome to another edition of Hometown Heroes, the program that reminds you no matter where you live in this great country of ours, no matter how big or how small your hometown might be, there really are stories there that should not go untold. What we've discovered is they don't have to go untold as long as we're willing to take that initiative to ask a few questions and then invest enough time to listen patiently as memories from long, long ago take on new meaning in the here and now and help us deepen our understanding. The goal is to honor our veterans for their service and sacrifice, to preserve their stories so we never forget the price that's been paid for our freedom. And in that process, we find that not only are we educated, not only are we entertained, but so often we find ourselves inspired by these stories from our greatest generation. This week marked the anniversary of a legendary World War II moment that we've heard about from different veterans on the program over the years, but we've never devoted an entire episode to before. And that's what we're going to do this weekend. If you ever have the chance to visit the island of Leyte in the Philippines, three miles south of Tacloban, you'll find MacArthur Landing Memorial National Park, where seven larger-than-life bronze statues rise out of the water, marking where General Douglas MacArthur came back to the Philippines, fulfilling his famous I Shall Return pledge from two and a half years earlier. That moment finally materialized on October 20th, 1944, and we're going to hear from a few men who were there that day, but first, let's hear the words of General MacArthur himself, heard on some of these very same airwaves 79 years ago this week. People of the Philippines, I have returned. By the grace of Almighty God, our forces stand again on Philippine soil, soil consecrated in the blood of our two peoples. We have come dedicated and committed to the task of destroying every vestige of enemy control over your daily lives and of restoring upon a foundation of indestructible strength the liberties of your people. At my side is your president, Sergio Osmeña, worthy successor of that great patriot, Manuel Quezon, with members of his cabinet. The seat of your government is now, therefore, firmly reestablished on Philippine soil. The hour of your redemption is here. Your patriots have demonstrated an unswerving and resolute devotion to the principles of freedom that challenges the best that is written on the pages of human history. I now call upon your supreme effort that the enemy may know from the temper of an aroused and outraged people within that he has a force there to contend with no less violent than is the force committed from without. Rally to me. Let the indomitable spirit of Bataan and Corregidor lead on. As the lines of battle roll forward to bring you within the zone of operations, rise and strike. Strike at every favorable opportunity. For your homes and hearths, strike. For future generations of your sons and daughters, strike. In the name of your sacred dead, strike. Let no heart be faint. Let every arm be steeled. The guidance of divine God points the way. Follow in his name to the holy grail of righteous victory. That victory was still nearly a year away, but that was General Douglas MacArthur on October 20th, 1944, the day he returned to the Philippines, which would be liberated at a cost. And we're going to hear from two men who were wounded as part of that cost. But first, a decorated PT boat captain from Minnesota who was there to witness MacArthur's historic return, Gordon Caldus. That goes back to uh, Pearl Harbor. You see, MacArthur was in charge of all the forces in the Pacific. He was living on Corregidor, which is in the bay of where Manila is. His wife and her young son were with him. And there were PT boats in the Philippines at that time. And one of them was Admiral, uh, then uh, boat captain, Bulkley who I got acquainted with after the war. Bulkley took uh, MacArthur and um, 
and his wife and son to uh, Australia. And uh, I think there were several boats that made that trip. Bulkley was in charge. He had the family aboard his boat. But, of course, the Japanese knew that he was there. And, of course, Japan is just above the Philippines. But uh, when he left and after he had arrived safely in Australia, he said, I shall return. That was a famous statement. And you were there when he fulfilled that promise and waded back ashore on Leyte. He came in on a battle wagon, but all of our boats were right around the, the battle wagon and, and many other boats. Our two squadrons were just laying around in the water there and watching. MacArthur came in on the 524 boat, and uh, so we were right there next to him. And, and then the, the 524 drove in towards shore and all lined up on the beach of Leyte uh, Beach were newsreel cameras. <laughs> there, there must have been a half a block of them. He got on the PT boat and went in just, they drove him in till they got into the shallow water. And then he transferred to a little smaller boat that had a flap on the front and they took him the rest of the way in. And then he waded ashore and with all these newsreel cameras, and us observing it, too. Yeah, what was your vantage point? How close to all of that were you? We were within uh, two or 300 feet. We were right next to it, you know. Did it feel like a historic moment to you? Oh, yes. Yes, it did. Gordon Caldas witnessed that moment now immortalized in bronze on Leyte, and so did a young farm boy from Madera, California, named Dave Wall. Eventually, he would be one of the thousands wounded in the liberation of the Philippines, but his perspective on his injuries was shaped by something that happened before he was assigned to the 24th Infantry Division during his training to become a medic. During basic training at Camp Barkley, Texas, we had a visiting orthopedic specialist on one occasion spoke to us. He had the battalion strong in there. He described our skeletons, naturally a bone doctor. He started at the tip of our head and went down to our toes. And when he got down to the sternum, he told us that if you find somebody where the sternum has been penetrated like with a bullet, don't worry about that guy because he's dead. And if he isn't, he will be in a few minutes because he's bleeding to death internally. So that message... I think stuck with me as much as anything that I heard during the uh, basic training session. That was the one thing that stayed with me. Oh, and he started this lecture, which was unusual in the Army. He started by quoting a scripture verse that we find in the book of Psalms, uh, where the psalmist said, I will praise the Lord, for I am wonderfully and fearfully made. Marvelous are thy works, O Lord, and of that my soul is well aware. So when he quoted scripture, I grabbed onto that, and I listened to him very intently. That's why I heard that speech about a bullet through the sternum. So that got your attention, and then you were paying attention to hear something that was going to come in handy later? That is exactly right. That caught my attention and uh, alerted me to what was going on. I remember as the war went on, I think all of us recognized that the old-timers tended to get uh, picked off sooner or later, and I honestly worried whether I would make that trip back back to California that I so hoped for. And then there was the one time when I was nicked by a bullet. After we landed on the Isle of Leyte, the first day, we landed in the early morning. By mid-afternoon, we got word that MacArthur was coming ashore, so we, a couple of us went back to the beach and watched him wade ashore. He came in on an LCT, landing craft tank, which was a little larger than the rest of us troops were on. Uh, but I, Were you guys on LCVPs, or what did you hit the shore on? The LCVP was our trip to the beach. So this is, you know, MacArthur, when he left the Philippines, had famously said, I shall return, and this is his triumphant return that's been photographed waiting in on Lady there. That is exactly true. Um, I watched him wait ashore and come up to the newsreel camera, which there was a newsreel camera there, and he made his famous speech, People of the Philippines, I have returned. And you were how far away? Two or three arms distance. I was behind the cameraman uh, in the area right behind the cameraman. And I saw his uh, lip quiver. So I knew that there were feelings there. There were feelings there. Then um, after MacArthur came ashore, that was our first day. Then it was on the ninth day 
when the four of us went to pick up this casualty. And we had picked him up and set him on the litter. And then as I moved around to my corner of the litter, I made the mistake of standing to my full five feet, eight and a half inches. And pow, I was knocked flat to my back. And there I found myself with my hands over the sternum. Now, naturally, I thought about that lecture, dead or bleeding to death, and I didn't think I was dead. I didn't feel, as a matter of fact, that I was seriously wounded. So I removed my hands and found a groove across the sternum. Now, recognizing that had I, my body been turned one way or the other, I very likely would have been a dead man. So in your training, you'd gotten this lecture that you weren't even paying attention to until you heard the Bible verse, but you pay attention, and he says, if anything penetrates the sternum, don't bother with it, that guy's a goner. And, right. and now you're what, a fraction of an inch away from something penetrating your sternum? Well, uh, a fraction of an inch, yes. Um, how, what can I say? It appeared later that this may have ricocheted slightly it may have changed the direction i think that i got the shoulder of the bullet versus the tip and i think had i gotten the tip of the bullet i'm a dead man so in other words it came straight across your chest but didn't penetrate far enough that's right exactly people tell me i was extra extra lucky at that time but i say well yes unless you believe like i do that there was divine intervention uh, and this is the simply the long and the short of it, I had my own private miracle, which I carry with me today. You have that perspective today, and you just said that. You carry with it today. Is that how you felt at that moment? I mean, did, you, did it hit you right away that that's what had happened? As a matter of fact, no. I, as a matter of fact, thought I was just one of the lucky guys, you know. And there were other experiences like that, but none quite as dramatic. And in each instance, I thought, boy, was I lucky I escaped again. I really didn't recognize and realize what was going on. No, I didn't think of it at the time as being divine intervention. I thought of it as being a lucky hombre. <laughs> what changed your mind? Because you look pretty convinced of it now. Well, I think the years that have gone by did it to me. Now, obviously, I'm a lot older now than I was then. And the years and realizing what happened, and it has been called back to my attention. How serious were you hurt? Did it take you out of action for a while? As a matter of fact, no. When I saw that it wasn't serious, I jumped to my feet and grabbed the litter, and we made tracks down to the battalion aid station. And I did do this when the ambulance came to pick up this party. I went with the ambulance back to my company. And for the next week or so, all I did was unload ambulance or goof around or didn't do much of anything during that time. And then our other people came back when the battalion was relieved. And then we were there for another week or so until we went out on the next mission. So I really wasn't. I was out of action for maybe a couple of weeks. You had a, a flesh wound that had to heal on your chest? Yes. It was kind of laughable. It wasn't that serious, you know. So there's a little flesh wound, a little bleeding. So what? Well, it was enough uh, for them to award you the Purple Heart. So it wasn't insignificant. But it sounds like you weren't looking for an excuse to get out of action that you wanted to continue doing what you were doing. Why was that? Well, I wouldn't say I wanted to, but when they said... Look, let's go we went and that is the way with the military when they say frog you jump and it was that simple when they woke me i was in a foxhole and he said get your stuff together because you're going out he said first go down to the mess hall and have your breakfast so we did the eight of us that were on detached service had breakfast before we got on the ship and went on the next mission and where'd you go from there the next mission took us around the other side of the island and then we went back up through the boonies. There were no roads, no airports, no rivers to go on. And the riflemen hadn't had breakfast. But we were assured that we would be followed by a group of Filipino carriers that would bring us our rations. And this was on a Friday, as I recall. We marched and marched until noontime, always looking back, still no carriers. We marched until evening, still looked back and still no carriers. And then Saturday, 
We marched and marched till noon and no carriers, until evening and no noon, no carriers. Sunday morning, still no food, and uh, we walked till noon, and by then the troops were all pretty tired, and we were not in shape to go on, really. And I guess our commanding officer uh, got somebody on the on the hose, and uh, within, I'd say, 45 minutes, a couple of C-47s with our biscuit bombers came by and dropped the rations to us, and then we had field rations from then on. Then we went on, took this position up on the hills. There were four hills where we took our positions. We were overlooking what was known as the Ormoc Corridor, and the Ormoc Corridor was the last place the enemy could still get to the ocean and get resupplied or get off the island. So we were told to hold our positions there at all cost, and we were up there for 31 days. And during that time, we brought the casualties to the battalion aid station, which was us. And uh, then we got Filipino carriers each day bringing in rations and ammo and carrying the wounded back out. So we were there for 31 days. And incidentally, the uh, battalion got a uh, presidential citation for that particular mission. Well, and you kind of nonchalantly threw out that uh, your orders were to hold at all costs. But... That is a pretty tall order, and and there were a lot of places where people who got that order paid a really heavy cost, and I imagine there were some significant casualties there. Did, does Is there something else that enters your mind or a, a next level of motivation, do you think, uh, occurs when you get that order, hold at all costs? Because that's, that's not a maybe. That's a pretty absolute. I think I thought of it much like any other orders that I got, so we hold our position, you know. And we did, and it was uncomfortable, but, you know, what can I say? And you mentioned earlier how you didn't let some of the emotions get to you. But do you look back at it now and see what you did and say, how in the world did I keep going and going and going and going? That is a thought, and uh, like I say, at the time, my emotions were totally shut off. Yes, I wonder how I did it. I wonder how I did it and why I did it, Sam. Is that right? Yeah. And even if you weren't allowing yourself to get too close to some of these guys, I imagine you developed an impression of the kind of people these were, the guys that were dying there, the guys that you were treating that you knew were going to go home and not the same kind of shape they came in. What do you think we need to understand about the kind of people that were over there fighting for freedom? Okay, that's a good question. I'm not sure how to answer it. I, we were people. We were no different than anybody else. Uh, young people, to be sure, most of us. When this fighting's going on, when you're wounded and all this is happening, to put it in context, you're, what, 19 years old? Yes, I was 19, uh, turned 20 at that time, and I was home and got my discharge the day before my 21st birthday. So I was in at 18 and out at 20 at 21. Now I see 21-year-old kids and 18-year-old kids, and I think, these are kids! (laughs) But to me, I, at the time, I thought I was as capable as anybody else, and probably I was for what I had to do. That was Dave Wall, not only an eyewitness to General MacArthur's return 79 years ago this week, but also one of the casualties absorbed on Leyte in the fighting that followed the general waiting ashore. When we come back, another Purple Heart recipient who hit the beach that day, Hometown Heroes, comes right back after this. Hey, do you ever have those moments where you realize you've been settling for less than the best for way too long? Sometimes we just accept the status quo without looking around for better ways to do things. And I got to tell you, when it comes to your money, I think I've found a better way with EECU. Just take a look at myeecu.org and I think you'll see why. EECU is not a bank. It's a not-for-profit credit union that's all about taking care of you, the member. That's one of the reasons EECU just keeps growing and growing. Over 350,000 members now in 12 different California counties and access to more than 30,000 co-op ATMs and free online and mobile banking. But what I love most is how EECU always goes above and beyond to serve the community. A decade ago, the leadership and generosity of EECU helped establish Central Valley Honor Flight. By the end of this year, more than 1,800 veterans will have seen their memorials in Washington, D.C. for free. And that's just one example of the community involvement that EECU takes oh so seriously. 
Pick up the phone and become a member today. 1-800-538-3328. That's 1-800-538-3328. Proudly presented by Provident Payments, this is Hometown Heroes. Celebrating everyday Americans who answer the call of duty. Welcome back to Hometown Heroes and a special episode today marking the anniversary of General MacArthur's famed return to the Philippines on October 20th, 1944. Someday I hope I'm going to get to go see those larger-than-life bronze statues rising out of the water at MacArthur Landing Memorial National Park on the island of Leyte, but the general waiting ashore was just symbolic, while the liberation of the island came at a cost. 96th Infantry Division machine gunner Joe Garabedian would become part of that cost, he too came ashore on October 20th, 1944. Fortunately, when we landed on Leyte, there was no beach fighting. We were kind of tickled about that, but the coxswains were very happy too because they can back off and bring another load in. You can imagine, they had to make quite a few trips. That, that was a hectic time of the war, whether you're going to make it or not. And your question was, what do you think about? What do you think about every morning? I'm still alive. Will I be alive tonight? Four of my outfit died. Why am I here? I'm right there. I got shot through my brachial plexus, which are all your nerve center, and come out and just missed my spine. Did you know what you were getting into? I don't know if people today understand all that went into a machine gun outfit in those days. Well, whether it's a rifleman or whether it's a machine gunner, you had to tear that machine apart, blindfolded, and put it back together in the dark on a grand rifle, which is one of the best rifles in the Army because it was automatic and gas-propelled better even than Germany who had a, a bolt action. We never had bolt action. Ours was automatic. You just pulled the trigger. On the machine gun, you have to take it apart, blindfolded, lay the parts down on the table. The most dangerous thing in there is a spring about 16 inches long. You don't pull the trigger when you lift well, let me say it like this. I've been saying it for years and years. Bolts forward, covers down. The second gunner puts, puts the belt through. You cock it. That's bolt forward, covers down. And all you got to do is just lift that up. The spring will push it forward. And when it goes forward, the firing pin hits, and the power the blow pushes it back. So that's 650 times a minute. But we were told, don't sleep on the trigger. You're not supposed to go over Fire bursts of six. Every sixth one is a tracer. Fire bursts of six. Fire bursts of six. That's to keep the barrel cool. Mm-hmm. It's water cooled. The tube is put down into the ground so the enemy can't see the steam coming up. It produces steam in a short while. But you don't want to hurt your barrel. You have a spare barrel. If you burn it out, uh, if it gets too hot and burn it out, you have to twist it out, put a new barrel in there, and bring it out and click it back. And hope you got the clicks back because if you make it too tight, the shell will fracture and you have to, you're out of business until you can get it out of there. You've got to put it a little bit short and then tighten it a notch or two. No, I did not think, what am I getting myself into? I was so, please believe me, I was so damn patriotic to see what we were doing. We had plenty of food. We had plenty of ammunition. There was 90,000 troops on the ocean when when I was going across. Mm -hmm. I was on that ship for 40 days. We stopped up at Mariani for a beer party. What that is is you climb down the rope ladder and they bring some ham sandwiches and you have a little beer party and if you're lucky enough you you can get a clean shower because on the ships it's all salt water Mm -hmm. for troops. I was walking around one of the bone piles, junkyard and I see this can of food, never been opened yet. I figured, you know what, let me take that on the ship with me. So we took some beer with us going back, and we took our shovels and popped the end off, and it was beautiful chip beef. Everybody had a hand in it. We didn't care if we got sick because <laughs> because it was enjoyable. So, yes, a machine gunner is dangerous. That's why, well, first of all, the officer threw his binoculars. I'm a poor farm kid. Never seen barbed binoculars in my life, half decent. So I picked it up and put it inside my shirt. After things kind of settled, I took it out and was looking around, and, well, zing, right through my shoulder. Mm -hmm. So it was a sniper 
Later on at the Army reunions, one of the guys told me, he says, when they found the guy, they counted 60 shots. He was up in the palm tree. Mm. So uh, I got up and I started running. I run about 10 feet. The blood is squirting out. I'm hollering, medics, medics. And I fell down. So my medic comes and, Garabinia, where's your medical kit? I says, it's on the Jeep. I said, I didn't want to carry it. So they gave me a shot of morphine. They patched me up. That's the only patching up I got until I got to Hawaii, New Guinea. So uh, this is an, an interesting part. They managed to get me on a stretcher. And a fellow by the name of Medziak out of Chicago, he was underneath the bush. He reached down and grabbed a hole of my stretcher. And one, one hand pulled me underneath that bush. It took another half hour before the firing. You don't fire all day long. It just goes in spurts. So then at about 5.30 in the evening, the Jeep came by, and they put three of us on and took us back 14 miles to the field hospital. And my God, we got there. When we got a couple hundred feet from there, we had to stretch a cable on a track layer that was there for this purpose, just to pull them the jeeps or the trucks through the uh, mud mm -hmm. because the mud was so deep. They actually slid, slid the vehicles through there. They put me in a tent, and the guy says, uh, contending me, he says, where's your, where's your dog tag? <laughs> I says, I left the back on a jeep. He says, that's a heck of a place to leave it. He says, how am I going to know who you are? Well, it's plain English. I'm Joseph Garabedian, 39421644 is my serial number. Okay, so he put that on a shipping tag, put it around my neck, and that night I was in that tent dark, just pitch dark. I felt something come out of my mouth, so I guess it must have been blood. And I, I took that shipping tag, and I wiped my mouth with it. The next morning when he comes in, somebody comes in to, take, to see who I am, tend to me. He said, where's your dog tag? How come you got your dog tag all dirty? I said, well, I had to wipe my blood out of my mouth. Well, anyhow, then they took me into the field hospital, cleaned me up, put me on a hospital ship. That afternoon, I was on the way to Hawaii. The ship was a not a troop ship. It was a roomy, it, like, a, like a passenger ship, but it was a hospital ship. We had beds to sleep in. We had commodes. It took us, I think, I don't know, two weeks or so to get there, maybe three weeks. I don't know. I had a little constipation problem. <laughs> so when I got there, the guy that was in charge of me, he says, okay, I've read your orders. Here's your bedpan. I said, what's a bedpan for? He says, you have to use it. I said, I don't like a bedpan. I won't, I won't use it. I don't know how to use it. He says, my orders say you have to use it. <laughs> so I used it. He says, you will never use a bedpan again under my watch. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, I was there until I think about the 19th of December. I was happy there, even though I got nothing but a turkey tail. So I'm going to bounce around with you a little bit. The reason I asked about the machine gunner thing. So this, this is a heavy thing to carry. You've got to carry the barrel, the tripod. Someone's got to carry some ammunition. Yeah, there's one, two, three, four, about five ammunition bearers. Uh-huh. The gunner and the second gunner take turns. But when they get tired, they'll let us handle it, which we enjoyed it. So you got about four ammunition bearers. Each can's got 650 rounds a minute, plus the one that is going in. And you don't sleep on it. It's like on, not like on the movies where they just uh, fall asleep on the trigger. It's the fire bursts at six and you stop. You just you, and you come down a trail real nice. You don't even have to look through a, a sight because you can see where it's hitting. Every sixth one being a tracer, just automatically you can just bring yourself right down that path. And it's got a good sight at a mile. The M1 rifle was the same shell that used the Garand, the same shell that the machine gunner belt had, and the same shell that fit in the carbine, which was a 15 shell clip. Well, I'm just curious. I mean, I'm guessing you had to know that the odds are more against you if you're part of a machine gun squad because you're a bigger yeah. target for the enemy. You're the one they want to take out. But, you know, there's certain things, again, please believe me, patriotism that stays with you, and you're living through hell anyhow. You're living through hell anyhow, so you just as well do what the guys did at Gettysburg or where else, or Washington crossing the Delaware. We're all the same people. It's the same country. How this country did this in 250 years, I don't know. But, yes, we knew, but you can't say nothing. You can't back out. Did they tell you this is how long the average machine gunner lasts in combat? It's in writing. Three minutes. Three minutes of combat. Yes. You're going to be killed or wounded. Yeah. In three minutes, they'll spot you. That's why you want to 
fire for burst of six or three or four times and then move. You don't stay in the same spot. Now, some of these places that make their surroundings out of concrete and everything else like German did and all that, once you throw a, a grenade, you got the whole outfit. So you're 20 years old. You've never been in combat before, and you're landing at Leyte, and this is part of a larger plot because the Americans had been in the Philippines. They'd been either captured or chased out. Thousands of them are on the Bataan Death March. MacArthur gets out of there, but he says, I shall return. And the day that he actually fulfilled that promise was the day you were landed yeah. on the same beach? Yes. We landed on the 20th. On the 27th, we turned left on Tanawan, and then on the 28th, we were going into the Kailing. That evening, when all this action came on and I got wounded, I read where they had to go back a 1,000 feet and regroup and start all over again to go into Kailing. That's when the, most of the fighting started. There wasn't too, too much fighting before there. On Catman Hill and some of those places there was, it was very slow, but it picked up. They weren't too prepared. So what was happening right before you got hit. I was looking through my binoculars like this, behind the gun itself. But there was, just before that, a um, mortar shell blew up behind us, and actually nobody, none of us got any shrapnel, but the noise was deafening. It was rather quiet, but then all it takes is one fake shooter, and you got a bunch of people shooting. I remember the, fir the first action we got there, we were shooting up into a palm tree, and in a few seconds, the whole, all, the whole palm tree was pruned. <laughs> the officer was, stop it, stop it, you know. It's amazing how they would be able to hide in a palm tree. There's not that much place to hide up those things. And you've made it clear how patriotic you felt, how important this was for you to do this for your country. But as you're entering into combat for the first time in your life, were you scared? Were you nervous, anxious? As long as you're whole, you're scared as hell. Or if you get wounded... Now, when I got wounded, I didn't even think of dying. I don't know why. Hmm. All I knew is I sprung up, ran about 10 feet, and fell like I said a while ago. You're in it now. You're in it. I didn't get into the tough fighting where they did in Okinawa. So I got letters from some of the guys. They said it was, you think Leite was a lot of hell. This is altogether hell because they had thousands of people. They, they lost 1,000 soldiers. We lost 17,000. They're ready for us. They're, you know, it's like football, offense, defense. They're on defense. They're, they're, they know your spot. They know exactly. They've got their mortars all tuned in, and they know exactly where it's going to fall. And when you got hit, what did that feel like? Like a bee sting. Believe me, a bee, it didn't hit any bones, I guess. That's why. Like a bee sting. So it came in not too far from your head, a yeah, couple right, inches. Right here, yeah. Right on your left shoulder. I think he was trying to hit my head. <laughs> Good thing he missed. <laughs> but he didn't miss by much. No. So it goes in vertically, almost, on your left shoulder and exits down near your tailbone, kind of? Uh, no, in the center of my back. Right in the center of your back. Half inch from my spine. I'd have been paralyzed. Yeah. That shakes me. In fact, it shakes the doctors when they see it to be that close to the spine. It's kind of hard to do that. There's a <laughs> lot of bones that he had to miss. Well, that's probably where that blood came into my mouth. You know, people ask me, well, how did you get blood through your mouth? So I guess it must have been some of that internal injuries. What about your arm? Did you have the use of that left arm at all? I didn't have the use of that arm for more than a year. I was in the hospital. From that point on, I got discharged on November 45. We entered the United States in the back again on the 2nd of January of 45. I got discharged. The end of 45, I got discharged. Mm -hmm. My arm was useless. Even now, when the weather gets real cold, this arm is useless because I got a 30% disability on it. Well, it sounds almost miraculous you were ever able to use it at all. I use it for everything. But I'm thinking about the first 30 minutes that you're wounded because you <laughs> described it. They get you on a stretcher, but you're still out there, and they're still firing all around you, and, yeah. and your buddy's able to pull you under a bush. I've often wondered how they got me on, well, how they got me on the stretcher, but Meziak was the only one under the bush within reach of me, and he pulled it underneath. I guess what happened was they spread out. Once they got me on the stretcher, but and that stretcher is on legs or something, and they, he... He's a big, great big Pollock, great big Pollock. Too bad he had to die. Uh, he grabbed me and pulled me underneath. What do you think would have happened to you if he didn't do that? They would have nailed me. 
they would have seen you. Yeah. It's hard to say what would have, what would have happened. It wasn't too far. But that wasn't very much action. Eight days. Was it worth it? All the training? Now, did the government lose money on me, or did they make? <laughs> well, I think everyone's going to form an opinion about that by the time we're done here. But you had a long journey. I mean, you just said you didn't have the use of your arm for a year. Yes. So well, this is this is a long time that you're dealing with this daily. When they first get you to to a place where they can help, is it sinking into you that you may never be able to use this left arm again? No, because I was always aggressive. When I came back in 1946, I had my truck and trailer. I was able to use my arm to haul bricks, sand, and gravel for our building. And by February, we were in business. I run the lathe for 13 years. I'd never seen a lathe before. But you learn those things. You're aggressive. It's your chance. you got to do it. Sounds like you never took anything for granted either. Listening to my father's stories? No. I'm just thankful that my mother and father were able to come to this country, and not only my mother and father, millions of other people came to this country for a reason, safety and food. At least they would say that when you go to bed at night, you know that you're going to wake up in the morning. I know this is something that's, uh, that you've lived with for more than 75 years. Yes. So it doesn't seem like as big of a deal as it might be to someone who hasn't gone through it. But again, you're a 20-year-old kid. And you don't know if you're going to keep your arm or not. Did you ever yeah. think they were going to have to amputate? I knew I'd find a way. No, well, when they, well, first of all, use the word parting. I got to part your arm. I kind of figured that's got to mean cutting. I didn't care. You know, I'm. Yes, I cared, but I was in this barracks. I had my three meals a day, and all of a sudden, when they told me I was going to ship out about the 19th of December or something like that, I worked at it. These women, different women, worked on me constantly. They broke my knuckles. They broke my, when I say broke, it broke the calcium. I had calcium on every one of my joints, and she'd put her knee up in my arm and pull on it back and forth. This is when I was still in, in the... Hollandia? Uh, yeah. And they'd break it. And it hurt, hurt terrible, especially, you know, breaking the tri fingers like this. I had a half a cast on. It was a full cast. Then they would, they took a skill saw and cut the sides off and... Put a band around it. Well, at nighttime, when everybody's asleep, oh, I used to take that thing off and just lay my arm down there. And it felt so good. After about an hour or so, I'd put the cast back on. It was a half cast. And I'd put the band and had a little clip on the end. No one knew it. <laughs> I took it off. <laughs> Boy, that, when they gave me that turkey tail for Thanksgiving, and then I come home one. The first dinner I came to, I said, I don't want no turkey tail. <laughs> <laughs> how did you end up being able to use your arm again? Where did that come from? And how did you first get an idea that, hey, this may not be over here after all? You heard about the guy, the farmer that picked up the calf and he ended up to be a cow? I don't think I've heard that one. Okay. You pick up the calf every day. Yeah. And finally you get to the point where it's a cow and you still pick it up. Well, you just don't give up. What are you going to gain if you don't? Mm. It's it's there. I got better. I remember the first job, I was holding some peaches, and I put my hand underneath the box because I couldn't grab the cleat. And little by little, it came through. The reason I say I was driving truck, I'd work at commercials for so many hours a day and then take my truck at night and haul peaches, anything. Anything can make a buck. I think you said earlier there was a moment where you felt a little twitch or something, and you knew that there was still a chance there could be some muscle memory My there? bicep jumped, this one right here. Uh -huh. I would always try to jump it, and all of a sudden I noticed it was jumping. You get hit, but because of the way the bullet came through, it didn't kill you, it didn't sever your spine. You may not be able to use your arm, but over that year in the hospital, a whole year in the hospital, yes. I think that's hard for no, any of us no. to fathom. What do you no. think it was for that year that kept your mind engaged or kept your, your heart hopeful? that there was something to look forward to. I was going to get well. I was going to get well. And the day that you were wounded, there were guys from your outfit that were killed? We lost, all told, 2,500 on both places. Leyte and Okinawa? Yes. Were any of those guys who were killed guys that you knew very well? Yeah, I got a list of them in my book. I think there was about 20 of them. These are guys that you trained with? Yes. That you'd been around? Yeah. So then you're you're in the hospital for a year. You're in the hospital when this new weapon, the atomic bomb, gets used. You're in the hospital when 
Japan surrenders. What was that like, getting that news, being back here in a hospital? Okay. When the war in Germany was over, I didn't go to town to celebrate that night because I've got the feeling of hurting for the guys that got killed. A few months later, <clears throat> when the war was over in Japan, again, I did not go to town for and celebrate. You know, in, in, those time, in those days, Fulton Street was a celebration street. You could drive down the street and pick up a friend or pick up a girl or whatever you want to do, and you had a date and celebrate. I didn't go to either one of them because I felt for the guys, for the four, especially the four guys in my outfit. Eddie Wanovich, number two gunner, always carried a little Bible. He got killed. John Preble got killed. Woodrow Rogers just got a divorce when he joined in our outfit. I didn't gamble, so I people would ask me for money, and I would give them money. I didn't have that much, but anyhow, they'd ask me. So he told me one day, he said, next time I see you loaning money to those guys, I'm going to block your head off. He said, say no to them. Well, I was a little bashful. I was a little afraid. didn't want to say no. I hate to say the fact that he died because he was a pretty good guy. We had one, our number one gunner that cooled down, and he, I got a letter from a captain to my mother. I'm doing everything in my power to get Joe back <laughs> because I was so involved in the machine gun. Well, that never happened. But he wrote a good letter. To my mother. Most of us alive today, most people listening to this, didn't live through World War II. Why is it important? Why does it still matter? And what should we understand and remember about what happened then? If it didn't turn out the way it did, we would have lost our country. But you know what? What I'm proud of? I'm proud of the American youth. Dance hall boys, they called us. I thank God for everything. Again, that was Joe Garabedian. So we've heard from two men who were wounded in the liberation of Leyte, but what about one of those MacArthur left behind on Corregidor when he took his family to safety back in 1942? We're going to get that perspective when Hometown Heroes comes right back after this. Ever feel like that dollar just doesn't go as far anymore? Well, join the club. Actually, you really should join the club. I mean, join the more than 350,000 members of EECU, the not-for-profit credit union now in 12 California counties. Free online and mobile banking, more than 30,000 co-op ATMs, and not just fair, but fantastic rates on auto loans, mortgages, and home equity lines of credit. Go to myeecu.org to become a member today, or just call this number, 1-800-538-3328. When times get tough and budgets get tight, a lot of businesses start slashing their marketing budgets, which all too often turns into a costly mistake. Instead, what if you could customize that investment to zero in on your target audience with surgical precision? And why am I saying what if? Because I already know you can with search strategy marketing. It's not about how much you spend, it's about the strategy behind it. And Search Strategy Marketing is ready to prove it to you with a free, no-obligation assessment of your current efforts. Learn how to outrank your competition with a free, customized action plan just for Hometown Heroes listeners. Just go to hometownheroesradio.com and click on that light bulb logo for Search Strategy Marketing. It doesn't matter what your business is, Search Strategy Marketing can lead you to the best way to connect with your customers. So look for that light bulb logo today at hometownheroesradio.com and plug into the power that can take your business to the next level. Honoring veterans from sea to shining sea, you're listening to Hometown Heroes with Paul Leffler, brought to you by this local station and its sponsors and presented everywhere, on the air and online, by Provident Payments, one of the fastest-growing payment consultants in America. Connect today at ProvidentPayments.com. People of the Philippines, I have returned. General Douglas MacArthur uttered those words 79 years ago this week, on October 20th, 1944, and we've heard from three men already who were there that day as he waded onto the island of Leyte. But we remember the return in large part because of the pledge MacArthur had made two and a half years earlier after fleeing Corregidor. 
where American forces had been under attack by the Japanese for months. William Sanchez had been a promising boxer in Southern California, even offered a scholarship by UCLA. He would end up on the USS Missouri with MacArthur in Tokyo Bay on September 2, 1945, when Japan's unconditional surrender was finalized. But what he endured in the years in between was almost unthinkable. So many things happened, and so many things happened fast that you really didn't have time to think. You just acted accordingly, you know, according to the situation. I was right on Corregidor, right on the rock. Uh Uh-huh. And people who know some of that history know that after the Japanese attack, eventually when the Bataan Peninsula fell and there was the death march and they've heard about MacArthur leaving, and when MacArthur left, you were one who stayed behind. That's right. We were left behind, not by choice, but... It happened. How did you feel about that at the time? Not too good. The treatment wasn't very good at all. And how about your supplies? Did you guys have the the normal supplies you should have had? No, not quite. We had to do without a lot of things, but we managed. And as the Bataan Death March is happening across the way in April of 1942, are you guys getting updates? Are you aware of, of what's happening there? We were... Pretty well up to date, yes. We knew what was happening at most posts. It was a difficult time for us. How much time did you spend in the Malinta Tunnel? few months. Yeah. It was uh, our only place we could sort of uh, do our own thing. Those were hard days. Yes, I try to imagine myself in your shoes. Yeah. And it seems like that's... That's a pretty unique place to be where you'd be pretty isolated and cut off from the rest of the world. That's about true. Yes, you had no contact with the outside world. And did you have a sense that at some point your capture was unavoidable? Well, we knew it was going to happen, so we just went along with it. We had a very, very hard time. We had no say in the matter. And after December 7th, We've got the rest of December and January and February and March and April. How often during that time were the Japanese bombing where you were and strafing Corregidor where you were? They came repeatedly. They had no opposition whatsoever, so they came at well. So that was just something you had to get used to? That's it. You had to accept. You don't get used to it, but you have to accept it. It was a tough life. It was rough. What do you remember about Cinco de Mayo in 1942? Nothing but bad things. Everything that happened was bad. That was the day they invaded Corregidor. Right. And at that point, they knew you had experience with machine guns, so they they sent you out to a machine gun post? Yes, I was at a machine gun post on the defense side. Life wasn't easy. It just one bad thing after another would happen. One of the reasons you've touched so many lives and inspired so many people is that you've made it through all this and you've survived all this. That's it. I was able to endure, and I try to make things less difficult. How did you do that? Well, you roll with the punches and do the best you can. You accept it. So on May 5th, after months of of shelling, bombing, strafing, the Japanese are finally on your island. That's it. And they actually knocked out your machine gun post, right? They they did. They overwhelmed us. Uh, Their superiority was something that we couldn't endure. But even though they they hit your position, you weren't wounded and none of the men with you were? We had some wounded, but uh, it could have been worse. And you went back to the tunnel? Yes, sir. You had no freedom at all. Well, and that was really going to be the case once the decision was made to surrender. That's it. Actually, we didn't know what would happen at the surrender, but we found out real soon that things weren't going to be pleasant. Well, and I want to hear about that. But before we get to that, let me ask you a question that is relevant today at age 102 and a half, because I'm sure that every once in a while you see the flag, your flag, the stars and stripes. What do you think about when you see that flag? You take a lot of pride in that. And there was a flag a big giant flag flying above your post on Corregidor? Yes. 
and I understand you were asked to, to take that flag down so the Japanese wouldn't get it? Yes. We tried to preserve the flag itself so that it wouldn't fall into Japanese hands. We took the flag down and we hit it. And it had been shot up a little bit, I guess, right? It had a few shell shots on it, yes, quite a bit. So did someone tell you to tear it into little pieces, or was that your idea? No, it came about. It's, I wouldn't say it was my idea, but it was the only thing we could think of. We tore it into little pieces so that it wouldn't fall into enemy hands. Once it was in little pieces, we just kept it. They wanted the flag in total, and they didn't have the chance to get it. I'm just imagining, you know, obviously you're someone who signed up to defend your country, and now you're, you're overseas in a very difficult situation defending your country, and now you're having to take apart the emblem of your country. Was that an emotional experience? Yes, it was, but you had to accept it, and that's what we did. Were there some tears during that process? Yes, there was. Quite a few. Hmm. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but I believe that I heard you mention before or read about it that you made a statement at the time as you're completing this task that you never asked for, that, that the situation presented to you, about hoping no one else ever had to do that, what you were doing. That's right. It was a very bad experience. And I'm not trying to make you dwell in a bad experience. It's for us to understand what you went through helps us appreciate more what we have, what you and so many others paid for. Yes, yes, it was a very difficult time for us. In holding off the enemy there for five months after the attacks that brought America into the war, those undersupplied but courageous American forces bought enough time for the U.S. to regroup with a new base of operations in Australia. That would prove pretty important through the rest of the war, but it all came at a heavy cost. Like the thousands who survived the Bataan Death March a month earlier, those captured on Corregidor would spend the next three-plus years in captivity. Do you remember, Mr. Sanchez, what that felt like when you heard that the general had reluctantly ordered all 11,000 troops on Corregidor, all the Filipinos and all the Americans like you, to surrender? Well, you can't forget that. You knew you were going to lose your freedom, so it was a hard thing to accept. Did you ever think you were going to lose your life? Yes, all the time. Mm. At any time, you figured this might be your last moment. And when that surrender happened, you probably had no idea what to expect from the Japanese, right? Right. We had no idea what was going to happen to us. What did happen to you? What was the first thing they had you do? Most of it was bad treatment and things that you don't really expect. But you have to endure. And you were still a very young man. I was a very young kid, yes. You're in your early 20s. At this point, you're 23. Do you think that some of what you'd already endured in your life prepared you to handle that? Yes. It was a good experience to be able to handle what was coming. Mm. And you don't wish it on other people. So now you're a prisoner. Yes. And you have no idea how long you're going to be a prisoner. That's the worst part. So how did you face that? What what gave you the strength or the hope to endure, to persist, to persevere? Well, you never lose hope. You always think something better is going to happen. And you go on that basis. Things can't get worse. But for you, as I understand your story, after you're a prisoner, they did get worse. The Japanese gave you a real... Oh, yeah. Brutal task. The Japanese were real bad. It's something we had to learn to endure. And they made you pile up all the, the bodies of the Americans and Filipinos who've been killed there? Yes. They made us take care of all the bodies and everything, and we thought it would never end. And then what did they do with those bodies that they forced you to gather? Oh, they just pile them up carted them up and set fire to it. They weren't very kind. And all in all, it was a very bad experience. But it was something that had to be endured. 
And so this is 1942. And as I said, you didn't know how long, but it was going to be a long time yes. until you tasted freedom again. Yes. It was a very difficult time at the time. Can you help us understand what life in captivity was like and what some of the, the things you had to face and endure were? It is very difficult to try to explain what we endured. It's unbelievable, but it happened. Is it okay if I ask you a few questions about some of it? Yes. And I realize that this is something you had to survive one day at a time for more than three years. You never knew what was going to happen the next day. From day to day, you learn to live life. Were there some people that you were with that helped you? We all helped each other. There was many bad things we had to learn to endure and we all helped each other. You know, one thing that I think most people listening can identify with or maybe can get a, a frame of reference from, since we all have to eat to survive, maybe people would be interested to hear what your menu consisted of as a prisoner of war. Leftovers. What they didn't eat, they would feed us. Is it fair to say that you ended up eating some things you never thought you'd eat? That is true. It was a rough time in life that you don't even like to think about. And we talked about you being a boxer, a good enough boxer that the Bruins wanted to give you a scholarship for it. That's right. So you're you're in pretty good physical shape before this happens. Very good shape. Uh-huh. But that dwindles fast. Yeah. So how much do you think you weighed before the war? Oh, maybe 135 pounds or something. And we were down to about 100 Mm-hmm. It was a very difficult life overall and the way things happened. And, you know, people today, some of the, the reference points they have to this experience, maybe one of the most well-known would be your friend Louis Zamperini, and they've seen the movie Unbroken or they've read that book by Laura Hillenbrand yes. or read Louis's book. Louis Zamperini happened to be in my camp, mm -hmm. so I knew real well what he wrote about. So when he wrote about being tortured? Yes. You experienced similar things? Well, life itself was a torture. And it's just something you had to learn to endure. How often did you think about your brother or your sister, or your, your cousins, your family back here? Quite often you think of what life is like to be with your family, yes. I've had a lot of ex-prisoners of war give me different perspectives on some of the things they did in captivity to focus their minds or to remain hopeful. Some guys would daydream about all the things they were going to eat when they got out or the business they were going to start. You always think about that, what you're going to eat when you get out. That's the primary thought. <laughs> so what was that for you? Was there something you were really looking forward to? Oh, no. I just learned to accept things as they were and hope for something better. I don't ask this to be salacious or melodramatic or anything like that, but just so we understand what it was really like. What were some of the most challenging things or circumstances that your Japanese captors made you endure? Well, first, we didn't eat enough. We were always hungry. So they knew how what our limit were and everything, and things were difficult. It's hard to accept some of the things we had to endure. And I'm sure it was different at different times in different camps, but could you give us an example of, of like what a daily ration might be that they gave you to eat or drink? It would vary. Sometimes we would eat good. Sometimes we wouldn't eat at all. So it would vary. It's Nothing that would be steady. You just learn to accept things as they are for the moment. It's a very, very good feeling to think that you're going to have freedom again. Just the thought of it makes it exceptional. You always think the best is going to happen. You never think of the worst. It's always the best. Where were you, and can you help me understand what it was like when that taste of freedom finally showed up again. Oh, exhilarating. 
I was a prisoner in a prison camp when they finally decided to surrender. And boy, that was a great day. Before you came home, back to California, you actually ended up in a very unique place on September 2nd, 1945, two and a half weeks or so after the Japanese declared their intent to surrender. They actually had some dignitaries that came aboard the USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay and, and signed the instruments of surrender. Yes. And we've seen the pictures. General MacArthur was there, and Admiral Nimitz was there, and this skinny all General the, Wainwright was there. All the big shots were there, yes. That was a happy day for all of us. Well, and somebody else was there. MacArthur. How about Sanchez? Yeah, I was right in the middle of things. But we were so grateful just to be free. How grateful are we to be free? It's so easy to take our freedom for granted. But perhaps the stories we've heard today have added a little to your perspective. And the next time you see or hear a reference to MacArthur's triumphant fulfillment of his I Shall Return pledge, maybe you'll remember William Sanchez and others who endured captivity. You'll remember Dave Wall and Joe Garabedian and the rest of those who paid a real price for the liberation of the Philippines and the ultimate victory for the Allies in World War II. And maybe, just maybe, it'll take all of us back to those four words we conclude this program with each and every week. Freedom is not free. To let Paul know about a veteran in your life, visit hometownheroesradio.com and click on Suggest a Veteran. Today's program has been brought to you by Provident Payments. Give your business the edge only their personalized service can deliver at providentpayments.com.